Uh, yeah, I'm just so grateful to be here. Listen, I just want to look around at who's here and uh, just invite you to join me in, in switching to the gallery view, if you can, uh, and just looking around. Um, ultimately, the Dharma is uh, occurs in community and uh, we are the people who are here. So I'm going to take off my glasses and just look and see who's here. Maybe you'll see some old friends. <laughs> I see some friends. Hello. <laughs> oh, how sweet. Oh, how sweet. Dear friends who are here. Uh, I'm not going to name you because I don't want to leave everyone out, but it's uh, great, great to see you. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, yeah. All right. I'm going back there so I can see you while I'm talking and see if you're <clears throat> seem interested in what I'm doing. So I'm so uh, grateful to be here. You know, I have such appreciation for um, the everyday Zen community, um, certainly for Norman, uh, who invited me to be here, I have a lot of appreciation, but for so many other people that I met who have been a part of building what you're doing. And so uh, it's a real honor and a joy to get to hang out with you for an evening. <clears throat> um, so I have a question. How many people here, I know that you were like Norman was giving talks uh, related to my book, uh, Vasubandhu's Three Natures, which I'm going to be talking about tonight. And I'm just wondering how many people were there for those lectures? If you could just raise your hand. A lot of people but not everyone. Okay, that's cool. Oh, and this automatically uh, put my hand up. Great. So a bunch of you had your auto, your on-screen hands automatically raised by the beauty of technology. Anyway, okay, so I see that there are some people for whom this may not be familiar and a lot of people who may have really spent a lot of time with it. And so this is kind of the norm in my experience in teaching Dharma is there's usually people there who know probably way more than me and people who are pretty new to the material. And somehow um, we come together and, uh, you know, I'll do my best to convey something that is uh, beneficial to, to each of you. <clears throat> so um, I'm going to talk about Vasu Bandhu's three natures teaching. <clears throat> so first up, Vasu Bandhu, uh, an extremely influential Indian monk from Around the middle of the first millennium common era, uh, Vasubandhu is considered one of the six ornaments of Tibetan Buddhism, one of the five uh, fundamental teachers of the Jodo Shinshu tradition, and is in all Zen lineages. <laughs> and, um, you know, is an interesting figure in that he started his uh, practice. He's a very prolific writer whose writings have been studied for about 1500 years, but started off in one a Buddhist tradition and ended up in another. And you can really trace the evolution of his thought. He started in what we call the Abhidharma tradition. So an easy way to think of that is like Buddhist psychology, very in-depth Buddhist psychology. And then he moved along and incorporated that Buddhist psychology into the Mahayana Buddhist movement as part of uh, a Buddhist tradition we call yoga chara or yoga practice. So I don't like to be too academic if I can avoid it. Really, what this body of work that he left us is about integrating the 
internal focus of early Buddhist practices that allow us to be mindful of a particular elements of our experience, like uh, the sensations in our body, um, different kinds of emotions in particular are extremely important, heavily emphasized. So really caring about noticing, naming, and distinguishing the emotional states we're experiencing as part of our process of being free from suffering and integrating that sort of inward looking tendency with the Mahayana vision and focus on collective and universal liberation. <clears throat> so one way I like to think about this is this is about being able to engage in the work of making everyone in the world be more free without getting burned out, exhausted, and miserable. That's really, I think, the point. Uh, so just today I was working with a colleague here in Minneapolis to set up some events where we're going to bring people to just sit and bear witness and uh, experience what's happening at George Floyd Square, which is near my house, which is the site of George Floyd's murder and a <clears throat> site of a lot of spiritual practice. So realizing that we can come together to face um, systemic harm, but do it in a way that simultaneously cares for one another and for ourselves. This is really the Mahayana vision and the Yogacara vision, in my opinion. So a lot of the reason I teach a lot of Yogacara is because I'm really inspired by Thich Nhat Hanh, who you can see behind me on my altar, both standing uh, next to Katagiri Roshi, in whose lineage I am uh, carrying, and uh, also a picture of him with Dr. King. So Thich Nhat Hanh really based uh, his teachings, like the kind of philosophical basis of them is in large part Yogacara. And so I really was inspired early on in my practice, in particular by Thich Nhat Hanh's writings. And, <clears throat> and I started to read the Yogacara stuff. I thought this was really good. And so I, you know, in large part, I'm trying to carry forward his vision of what he called engaged Buddhism. Uh, but this way of really bringing all of Buddhist practice into, into our daily lives. <clears throat> so, uh, I am going to move on now to kind of the particularity of the material. So <clears throat> Yogacara is known for a couple main innovations within the Buddhist tradition. One is the idea of the Alaya Vijnana, which we call the storehouse consciousness. And I'm not really going to be talking about that today, but it's very prevalent. You see many, many references to it throughout Buddhist traditions. But what I'm going to be talking about is one of the other main innovations of the tradition, which is called the three natures, three natures. So I know a lot of you have read a lot about this. So hopefully sometimes it's like we talk about the same thing many times and new little doors will open. So I'm, I'm hoping that will happen. Anyway, the three natures, uh, the idea is that each thing is of three natures. Um, or you could say each thing uh, has these three characteristics. Sometimes instead of saying their natures, we call them characteristics. So instead of svabhava, they're called lakshana. So anyway, we're saying everything already is of these three natures. And the three natures are the imaginary nature, the dependent nature, and the complete realized nature. So everything is already of imaginary nature. It's already of uh, dependent nature and already of complete realized nature. And 
<clears throat> the imaginary nature of things is what you think they are. The dependent nature of things is that they appear as they do dependent on other things. And the complete realized nature is that they are not what you think they are. Pretty, on one hand, maybe you go, oh, that sounds simple. Um, also, extremely challenging to my conventional way of looking at the world and perhaps yours. So uh, I'm going to read you a passage from this book that I wrote about this. Uh, this book is a new translation uh, on Vasubandhu's treatise on three natures uh, with a book-length commentary that I wrote. The translation I did in partnership with Wei Jen Tang of Dharma Drum University in Taiwan. So this is kind of a long reading. Every aspect of what we would conventionally call experience is of these three natures. All the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, physical sensations, thoughts, emotions, and our sense of being a self. For example, the cobalt blue car that I can see outside my window is of an imaginary nature. Whatever I ex am experiencing it to be right now, a memory as I'm currently looking at letters on a screen, or now as I turn my head to look at it again, Whatever I experience it to be is a construction of habits of consciousness and imagination. I suspect it will take some time for you to consider this a reasonable or useful claim. And so, dear reader, that's why I'm writing this book. That car is also of a dependent nature. Countless conditions that are not the car create the appearance of a car. Reflected sunlight, ocular nerves, supply chain software, oil refineries, the desire for wealth, and so on. <clears throat> this car is also of complete realized nature. It isn't what I think it is. Recognizing that things aren't what you think they are can radically disarm the patterns of your mind that cause you to suffer and cause suffering. For example, in order to see the car in my normal way, I am usually ignorant of or ignore a vast array of conditions on which the appearance of the car depends. Conditions that cause suffering in this time of climate crisis. These teachings are to help us move beyond this kind of ignorance. The so-called knowledge that white people are inherently superior to black people and the purported fact that race exists as a biological phenomenon were confirmed by scientific experiments in the 19th century. These have since been disproven. This caused and causes incalculable harm. This so-called knowledge is imaginary. It arises from conditions, and its complete realized nature is that it is not real. And yet millions of people thought and still think it is true. Although many of us do not, the impacts of this view are pervasive. It affects where people live, the jobs we have, the wealth we inherit, our access to education, and so much more. They are alive in how I experience the world. This teaching is here so we may continually grow in our capacity to end and transform harmful patterns of which we are often unaware. By learning to see the three natures of the ideas that maintain harmful systems, we open the way for liberation. 
<clears throat> so in a way, you could say the three natures arose as a response to the uh, doctrine of emptiness in the early Mahayana, because people were concerned, and I think still are concerned, that when we say that each thing is empty of separate nature, uh, and we say there's no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, that we are going to give people the idea that things don't matter because they're not real. The three natures wants to point out why what we do matters if everything is empty of its own nature. That is the fundamental purpose of the teaching. So, for example, in the case that I use in the book, the example I use of race, although race is not a real thing, it's a fairly recent social construct, uh, it has real impacts on the well-being of everyone in the world. So there's no people that are separate from the pattern of racialized views. <clears throat> so this is the basic idea is we see things, we see that they're not absolutely real, that they're constructed by our patterns, that we have agency in constructing the patterns, that we're all connected, and wow, an opportunity for practice. That's what our life is. So I want to move through the three natures in turn, starting with the imaginary nature. So we're saying that things are constructed by the patterns of our mind. So ultimately, we're not saying that there, there might not be some absolute reality outside of our construction of it, but we could never know that because our way of knowing is always uh, governed by our habituation. So just the way we see things, the way we smell things, the emotions we have, the kind of things we think all come from a vast array of conditioning. In the Pali Canon, this vast array of condition is often referred to as being without discoverable beginning. And this array of conditioning that we're talking about is called karma. So karma in the Yogacara sense refers to any action of body, of mind, of emotion, and of perception. So normally when referring to karma in Buddhist texts, we say body, speech, and mind. So I'm breaking them down a little bit differently, but I just want to say this again, of bodily action, of thinking, of emotion, and of perception. All of each time in every moment, there's like thousands of activities that our consciousness is doing and how it's perceiving, the kind of feelings we're having. I mean, what does it even take for me to wave my hands around like this? It's mind boggling. How does that even happen? Lots and lots of conditioning manifests so that this can happen. And when I do it, it actually plants seeds so that I can do this a little bit more. So a person who does a lot of gestures with their hands will tend to do a lot of gestures with their hands because each time they made gestures with their hands, they planted seeds that will bear fruit in a similar action later. So the basic idea is each of these actions of perception, thought, emotion, or bodily action plants a seed that will produce a similar fruit at some point. You never know, according to Buddhist teachings on karma, it could happen in a half a second and it could happen in 10,000 years. But the most important thing and the point of these teachings 
is to say what you do in every moment always matters. There is no moment when a sentient being isn't planting the seeds that will create what will be experienced in the future. So this is fundamentally about empowerment and about reminding us that our lives are not trivial. So, uh, you know, if I uh, plant some seeds, like every time I see a particular person's face, I go, God, that person is such a jerk. I just hate them. I feel a lot of anger. I do a lot of objectification. I tell some stories to myself. Maybe I tell some other people similar stories. That plants seeds for alienation, for judgment, for anger. On the other hand, if I see that person and I'm like, oh, wow, there's anger here. Now, oh, look, there's this tendency to have these very judgmental, alienating, uh, objectifying thoughts. Well, in that moment, I planted seeds of awareness. I planted seeds of compassion because if I know that I'm angry and just see the anger, that's compassion because all compassion is, is being with suffering. That's what it means. So then instead of just planting the same old seeds, I can be part of creating a different world. <clears throat> so uh, this, by the way, if anyone's read any Thich Nhat Hanh, you've probably encountered this planting seeds type of language. He uses it a lot. Uh, it's a very common metaphor in, in Buddhist texts, actually preceding Yogacara, but they really take it up and then it gets used by a lot of other people. So anyway, yeah, what seeds are you planting? <clears throat> All right. I want to talk about the dependent nature. Mm. So uh, the dependent nature of things is that they appear the way they do dependent on other conditions. So actually, it's pretty similar to the imaginary nature, right? We're saying that we imagine things based on all these conditions. So the truth is these three natures are also all not different at all, which the text talks about quite a bit. It's kind of like looking at things from a slightly different angle. So sometimes we'll say that the dependent nature has a more expansive view of what the conditions are. So includes things uh, that are not karmic, but that's kind of a complicated technical question. So here, uh, I want to point out some more practical implications. So everything is dependent on everything else. So you can't really pull out the one element of the universe that wasn't part of you ending up here right now. You couldn't extract it. The universe has been the way it is. All those conditions, whatever they were, unimaginable. And suddenly there's this moment where it's like, you probably feel like you're a sentient being looking at a person giving a talk. Amazing. How can this possibly happen? Well, we don't figure it out is the idea. We just remember that it took all this vast array of conditions to make it how it is. And this can feel really good. So to feel the depth of our connection with the world can be really healing because healing in a way is it's related to the term wholeness. 
And so oftentimes we feel cut off, we feel alone, we feel separate, we feel alienated, we objectify. So recognize the dependent nature often shows up in the form of just feeling more connected to whatever is here. And this is pretty a common thing that happens, I think, to people who do Zen practice. So it's not uncommon that I, um, someone comes to our Zen center for morning zazen a few times, and then I talk to them a little later, and they're like, wow, you know, I just came. I didn't really know what I was doing. We're just sitting kind of in this dim light, and my mind kept making stuff up, and then I noticed my breath, and I was confused by the rituals, and then, and then I went outside. And I, there's a lake in front of our Zen center. They said, I looked out at the lake and I just, I just felt connected to what was there. I just felt more whole. You know, I hear this quite a bit. It's kind of a natural outgrowth of letting the part of the mind which creates separation be quiet and just rest in what's here. And what's here is actually already just dependency. <clears throat> so this can feel really good. It can feel really good. And you know, when you're feeling more deeply connected to things, you are realizing more deeply the dependent nature of phenomena because you're realizing your relationship. <clears throat> but, um, realizing the dependent nature of things can also be really hard um, because, to put it in the most blunt and difficult to hear way, because everything is always dependent on everything else, you can't possibly be separate from any of the suffering anywhere ever. It's not possible for you to be separate from any of it. And that's like pretty much impossible to really take in, I think, by, you know, my limited consciousness. But in the smaller form, as we become more attuned to the dependent nature, oftentimes what we're seeing is that we're not separate from something that is painful or causes harm. So, you know, like I had a vivid sense of this long time ago when I was a teenager, and I'm just like, wow, I pay taxes because I have a job and those taxes are building a, the largest military that has ever been conceived of in the world. And it's used to kill people all over the world. And it's like, I can't be separate from that. That was very painful. It's still painful for me. Um, and likewise, you know, oftentimes I do a lot of work around anti-racism and it, it's really painful for people because I was trained, you know, I grew up in the northern Midwest and it was like, you know, people talk about, oh, the, there was like all this bad racism in the southern, in the south, in the south. And so, oh, that enabled me to feel like it was far away. But when I really started paying attention and listening to people here, I realized that there's plenty of racism right here in the Twin Cities where I live. And that's painful. You know, and a little part of me wants, couldn't we just blame it on someone else? Oh, it's like the bad people doing it. Again, I'm trying to ail I'm trying to objectify, push it away, and not let myself feel the truth of my dependent nature with this phenomena. 
And then I can start to let it in and be like, I am inextricably bound with this. You know, the, the kind of wealth, access to education, safety that I have is uh, has to do with the fact that I am a white person in a country where racism is pervasive. That's that's hard to take in. In fact, there, for all I know, someone has signed off the meeting while I was talking about it because this is people often it's really hard to hear. So if it's painful for you, I just, uh, I, I bow to your pain. It's real. And, you know, uh, this comes up, you know, with a lot of things. I'd love to be like, oh, yeah, you know, those those bad chauvinist pigs who preserve patriarchy are over there. They're far away. And it's like, well, no. I want to acknowledge that, like, just in the dynamic of me being a man giving a long talk to a bunch of people is part of a long system that's patriarchal and be able to hold the truth of that and work with it honestly and hopefully create a world where it's not true anymore. Well, the, we can't destroy the past, but we can move forward and make room for voices of people of all genders. So that's work that I can do. But today I'm just giving a talk. So <laughs> that's what's happening today. Uh, so anyway, Seeing the dependent nature can both be really joyful and it can be really painful. But it is my opinion that ultimately those painful gestures are moving closer to the truth of our connection through suffering. They open the door to feeling more connected all the time. It's less painful to acknowledge the truth of our connection in these systems than it is to try and push them away or hide from them. That has been my experience. So, on to the complete realized nature. The unequivocal good news of Buddhism is right here, everybody. Everything is already of complete realized nature. What are we saying? It's already whole. It's already unbroken. There's nothing wrong with it. It's realized. What we're saying when we say it's realized is, the complete realized nature is what Buddhas see. What makes a Buddha a Buddha is that Buddha sees the complete realized nature of what is here. So re, when we talk about what is real in Yogacara terms, we're not talking about some objective reality. We're talking about the perception of a sentient being, like a person. I'm just, I keep saying sentient beings tonight. A person, we'll say. But I don't know. Let's have some dogs who are Buddhas. I'm ready. The complete realized nature is the perception of a Buddha, the way of seeing the world that allows us to be free from suffering and not contribute to suffering, and in fact, contribute to everyone's well-being. It's that simple. And the thing is, this teaching is saying, what you are seeing right now is not different than what Buddhas see. It's already of complete realized nature, because what Buddhas know is, there's not a world of objects to grasp. Our karma makes whatever this flux of experience is appear to be a set of objects, which can be either gotten or gotten rid of. And because of that, we suffer. But they're not. That's just habits of our mind that make them look that way. So they're already of complete realized nature, which means they're already replete with all the compassion, all the wisdom, all the freedom that Buddhism promises. 
And you might think, great. I would like to smoke some of that, Ben Connolly. All I'm doing is trying to convey what so many Mahayana teachings have said. This is a Yogacara teaching that things are of complete realized nature, but it is central to all Mahayana traditions that samsara and nirvana are one. So the thing is, when I say everything is already like Buddha, we haven't destroyed the fact that it's also appearing to us in this imaginary way that we are within a web of many other relationships where people suffer and where we what we do matters. So all these things are still true. The complete realized nature doesn't destroy something. It doesn't destroy anything. So to give a, a glimpse of this, oftentimes the complete realized nature of things is described in terms of the complete realized nature of what we would conventionally consider to be the self. So like our body, feelings, mind, that sort of thing. And the complete realized nature of what we conventionally think of as our environment. So at the end of Vasubandhu's uh, 30 verses on consciousness only, the last verse says, this is, this is the inconceivable, wholesome, unstained, constant realm. The blissful body of liberation, the Dharma body of the great sage. So this now, I'm gesturing like towards you and towards this room I'm in, but you could do the gesture and it would be your this. This is the, the inconceivable, wholesome, unstained, constant realm. And this, you can do your own body. This is the blissful body of liberation, the Dharma body of the great sage. Now, in this text, he is, and when he reaches that point, he's saying, if you have realization, then this is the inconceivable, wholesome, unstained, constant realm, and the blissful. this is the blissful body of liberation, the Dharma body of the great sage. But he's also saying that it's already like that now. <clears throat> now you might think, well, that's very nice for you, Vasubandhu. But in fact, Hakuin Zenji, at the end of the Song of Zazen, paraphrases that last verse. So the last two lines of the Song of Zazen say, this very place is the lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. It's the same thing. When Dogen Zenji wrote the Fukan Zazengi, he said, I want to write a text that inspires people to practice Zazen and shows them how to do it. The universal recommendation for Zazen. The opening lines of that text say, the way is originally perfect and all-pervading. How could it be contingent on practice and realization? The true vehicle is self-sufficient. What is their need for special effort? Indeed, the whole body is free from dust. Who could believe in a means to brush it clean? It is never apart from this very place. What is the use of traveling around to practice? Again, the body and the environment are already of complete realized nature. <clears throat> So what we're talking about is like, don't wait for liberation. Don't try and grab it. You don't have to go get it. Interestingly, 
Dogen uses that for his explanation for why you should practice zazen. Because you're Buddha and you're in nirvana. I mean, what else would you do there? It's pretty good. I'm going to read you two short passages from this book uh, to wrap up this talk. One of them refers to what we would conventionally consider the self and its complete realized nature. When I came to Buddhist practice, I was seeking something else. I sought an escape from the anguish I experienced. My therapist told me it was the anguish of trauma from the past reproducing itself. My psychiatrist told me my brain didn't process serotonin properly. My addiction recovery friends called it defects of character, self-will run riot. My Buddhist studies called it afflictive karma. All these ways of looking at it have their utility, and I am deeply grateful for all who have supported me in finding the wondrous, joyful existence of today. When we suffer, when we see the suffering of others, it is right to seek wellness, to seek something else. However, it is also true that there is not something else, that you and I are not, and cannot be broken. For if there is brokenness, there must be a wholeness that is elsewhere. This is a duality, and duality is just a habit of mind. And now, on the subject of the complete realized nature of where we are, Recently, I heard a talk by a Dakota elder named Bob Klanderud. He spoke of the total kinship of all life. He told us that the confluence of the Mississippi and Minnesota rivers near my home on U.S.-occupied Dakota land is called Bedote. For the Dakota, Bedote is the origin of the universe, the land of Genesis, in his words, it is Eden. He asked us, now that you know you live in Eden, how will you choose to live? All right, well, thank you for your kind attention. I think...